Hi, I'm Otto. Welcome to Ellen Sarah's podcast. Okay, we have a great conversation today with Heather Hansen. She is awesome. She is an advocacy expert. And it's something that we all need in our lives. She's giving us all the tools on how to ask for what we want, how to get what we want, how to be better communicators. Without demanding. In relationships. She also reads us. She At work. She listens to the podcast and she she tells us how our advocating styles are. This is such an easy listen. And it's just, there's so many little nuggets of just beauty in this thing. Beauty. Yeah. Um, she she very much knows what she's talking about. She um, was a trial lawyer. She also has her psychology degree. Um, she is trained in mediation. She's got a psychology degree. I just said that. Oh, again, uh, I tune yeah. you It's she crazy. I got to cli- tune you back in. Yeah, you got to tune me back in. She um, helps her clients overcome doubts and build belief and advocate for their ideas and themselves. She coaches She's- founders mm-hmm. on how to, you know, yep. operate on the highest. It's a great listen. It really is. So stay tuned. Hi, Heather. Hi, guys. How are you? Great. How are you? I am so well. I'm happy to be here. We're happy to have you. Can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you great. Okay. Heather, you've got a nice blowout. You look beautiful. No, I did this myself. I, I blow it dry before I go to bed and then I curl it in the morning. Oh, that's a good system. You are put together, unlike us. I, I just did a keynote. That's the only reason I'm put together. Okay, that's good. Because I, I did, um, I went to sleep with damp hair and woke up with like a like a hornet's nest behind my head. So then I had to do like the fake swoop up for a breakfast meeting so that I could uh, hide what was really happening. I think you both look fantastic. And you're both in the same place, which isn't always the case. It is not always the case. Sarah's not happy about being here at my place. She doesn't feel inspired here. <laughs> Listen, I'm... you got to advocate for yourself, Sarah. <gasps> <gasps> okay, we don't, we, don't listen to Heather. Do not listen to Heather, okay? Do not advocate for yourself. I think you're doing just fine. I, I listen to you guys enough to know how you advocate, which is interesting. Okay, great. We'll get to the analyzing of us once we've warmed up a little bit. You know? I just want to yeah, yeah, say yeah. I'm very sensitive to the elements. I'm very sensitive to my surroundings. So I do feel weirdly shut down here in this space, but it might just be that I'm on Aaron's turf. So she had, you know, I don't know. I don't know mm-hmm. what it is, but I am shut down here, but it's okay. Cause we're, we're changing it up. Well, I'm fine to just brush those feelings under the rug. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So Heather, Yes. Very, we're very excited to talk to you today because you are an advo- advocacy expert. For some reason, that word is hard for me. Advocacy. Um, and you, we talk, I'm sure if you listen to the podcast, you know that we talk a lot about um, sort of what, what are the things that women are talking about in their lives from the age of, you know, your teen years to the ends of your life, like doubting, regrets, like wondering, you know, why didn't I find the relationship I wanted? Why didn't I ask for what I wanted in the relationship that I was in or in the job that I'm in. And for some reason, women seem to have a bit of a harder time around that. And so we want to dig into that topic because you're the expert. And we also want to, let's circle at some point to how we can help our daughters at a very young age, tips in which we can teach them so that they don't have to like figure it out later in life like Aaron and I. I love that. I do a lot of speaking at schools to help younger girls do this work because that's the age to learn it, right? If you learn it young, then you can practice it and practice makes perfect. So take us through the sort of macro version of the journey that got you to focusing on advocacy for women. She was a trial attorney. Yeah. 
So yeah. So I was a trial attorney for 20 years and I was very good at it. I was very good. I actually defended doctors in medical malpractice cases. And I was really good at advocating for my clients in the courtroom and terrible at advocating for myself outside of the courtroom. And that is a thing for women. You know, there's an HBO, uh, Harvard Business Review study, which shows that men will love lie when they're advocating for themselves, while women lie when they're advocating for others. We do things for others that we won't do for ourselves. And that was me in the courtroom for sure. And I ended up in the emergency room. I had an allergic reaction to my own stress hormones. And I realized that I had to change something. And so I started just trying using the tools I had used in the courtroom, stories, evidence, energy, credibility, building my credibility outside of the courtroom. And it worked. And then I started coaching people and it worked for them. And now I'm obsessed with teaching women how to advocate for themselves. Because first of all, it makes us better when we want to advocate for each other and our kids and our parents as they get older, but also because no one can do it better than we can. So it's time that we step up. You said, so, okay. So I want to go back to your allergic reaction. You were defending somebody, your empathy, you essentially threw that felt exactly what she was feeling instead of having perspective on it, right? So I think about this all, okay, I'll let you speak. No, go ahead. You think about it all the time. Why? Well, I just think about it all the time because, you know, Erin likes to give me shit. She likes to be like, you're a monster. You have no feelings. Like you care about strangers, but you don't care about your own family. I think of myself as that like, Holden Caulfield type where I feel so deeply, like I will read a story about a stranger, right? And this story will truly, it will be like I'm inhabiting, I'm I'm taking on all the feelings of this person. And I'm like suffering for days at a time thinking about this stranger's experience. But then like, I don't really give a shit what happens to Aaron over here. So what does that say about me? Well, evil. <laughs> we could get down a lot of things that that says about you, but really what you're talking about is the different kinds of empathy. So there is cognitive empathy, which is seeing what other people see. And there's effective empathy, which is feeling what they feel. And when you're advocating, it's hard to be like you, Sarah, because you get so caught up in it and you feel those feelings. I always say that in the courtroom, if I were to feel my client's fear, impatience, anger, frustration, I'm not going to be very effective. And if you feel the people that you're advocating for, their fear, frustration, and anger, you're not going to be very effective. But if you can see the world the way that they do, if you can see things through someone else's perspective, it makes you a really good advocate because you can't change someone else's perspective until you see it because you don't know what stories to tell and what evidence is going to work with them and what questions are best with that person. So you've got to be able to have that cognitive empathy of seeing the world through their eyes or asking questions to get their perspective. And it's less important to have that emotional empathy. Is there some sort of correlation between like attachment styles or upbringing where, because it's not, it's not normal how deeply I feel things to the point where it ruins my day. I can't come out from under it thinking about what this stranger is going through or has gone through. And it's like, it stifles my creativity, my productivity, me as a mom. Like it's really, it's really overwhelming for me to deal with. Why am I like this? (laughs) Well, she took psychology. No, I know. It's just funny because Sarah always uses our sessions yeah. to basically try to just diagnose herself. <laughs> well, and th- listen, this is not, you would definitely want to talk to someone about attachment styles. I am familiar with them. And I think, I think that all of these things, we are a mosaic of the way that we're brought up, our genetics, our experiences, and just that thing that makes us different. But I do think that it is important. I think it's less important why you are that way. 
and how you use it, right? So if that is something that impacts you, Sarah, then the best thing that you can do is try to stay off of social when you want to be creative. This is not something I'm terribly good at. Social media Mm -hmm. is definitely a buffer for me, but it definitely can suck you in. And if it hurts your creativity, then you've got to find a way to control it. Guys, that's why I stopped reading the Daily Mail. Yeah. That's literally why I stopped reading it. It's so interesting because my therapist... He said it to me even today. He goes, it doesn't matter why. Why is not really relevant. It doesn't matter why. It doesn't matter if something happened, if it didn't happen, why it happened. Just figure out what is the most effective way today to live your life the way you want to live it and feel how you want to feel. Doesn't really matter what happened. That's exactly right. And and this feeds into advocating because one of the things that it's really important for people to understand is that you can't prove something until you believe it. You can't overcome someone else's doubts if you're still doubting. It's really hard. And so that means it's really important that we believe in ourselves. And it doesn't matter that we are all kinds of ways or all the things that we have done in the past. We've got to find a way to look at the evidence in such a way that we can believe in ourselves so that we can help other people believe in us as well as we're advocating for ourselves. So let's start at the beginning for, since we're focusing on on women not having, because we see it all the time with men. They feel like they deserve the the raise, right? They they believe I deserve this and I'm very comfortable asking for what I deserve. And for women, we feel sort of guilty. Like, do I deserve it? I feel bad asking for it. Am I going to seem a certain way? We worry about how we're going to be perceived. So like Sarah's point, asking about raising daughters, take us to the beginning as women and like where we are conditioned to not think that we deserve to advocate for ourselves. I think that what often happens for women is that we we, it's like the golden rule. Well, if I do certain things, they should want to give it to me instead of I should have to ask for it. So I used to do this in my relationships all the time. I would treat my boyfriend a certain way and expect that he knew that that meant that I wanted to be treated that same way. But I wouldn't ask for it. And then I would get resentful when he didn't give me what I wanted and the relationship would fall apart. I think we as young, especially I'm older than you guys are, but I, when I look at generations, I see a big divide. It's usually like millennials and below. They're not afraid to ask but they're not always great at asking. They're not always great at wording it in a way that reflects well and that gets the answers. The people that are a little bit older, they don't ask because they were brought up not to ask. I think your children, Sarah, and your children, your future children, Erin, they will be unafraid to ask. I think the work with them might be, how do you ask in a way that makes you get it? But a lot of it is socialization. As young girls, are they taught to ask for what they want or are they taught to be good girls and then get what they want? And I think for a long time, it was the latter. So I'm dealing with something right now with my 12-year-old where like, she's becoming a young woman, right? But she's still a kid. And so- I am the kind of parent that I'm always saying to her, she'll come home and she'll tell me a situation, right? About something that happened in a class, something that happened with a teacher, something that happened with her principal. And I say to her things like, listen, I think you should go talk to your principal. I think you should say, hey, can you chat for a minute? And I think you should say to her, listen, I hear where you're coming from. I get it. But it kind of, it really hurt my feelings the way you said it to me yesterday and have a conversation with her, right? But then my daughter goes, I can't talk to her like that. And I go, you can't talk to her like that? Of course you can. Like there's a respectful way, but they're so conditioned to just sort of like cower 
in the presence of someone in a, of authority, right? So there's like a fine line where you need to respect the principal and your teacher, but I was also- say, there's also kids their age that are like, yo, bitch, what's up? I don't want to go to class because I haven't slept <laughs> enough. It's like, there's there's in well, a lot of ways- That would be crazy. If you talk like that at our school, you get expelled. No, but, uh, but like- This generation, I just think that there's, there's a balance, I'm sure. And there is something with young people today that are advocating or like sort of taking advantage of the word advocating for themselves. And, you know, we were just talking to someone oh. who was telling us- about how their husband is a professor and that he gets- At like an Ivy League school. Emails all the time from students saying, I actually can't take the test tomorrow. I didn't get a full nine hours of sleep and I have to like advocate for my ability for my mental health. And it's like, uh, you're not getting nine hours of sleep does not mean you don't get to get take a test. Like this is mentally stressful on me. It's like, yes, tests are stressful. Right, we're taking yeah. advocating for ourselves a little extreme. So let's talk about that. Well. And you guys are talking about the two extremes, right? There are the people that are afraid to ask. Like, it sounds like your daughter right now is feeling this. They are in authority. I am not. I can't just walk up to the principal and say this thing. And then there's the other people who are completely unafraid to ask, but they're asking in a way that is not at all effective. So it's two different problems. For the people that are afraid to ask, a lot of that is the self-doubt. You've got to overcome your own self-doubt. Or it sounds like with your daughter, Sarah, it's a little bit of doubt of the system, right? Within the system, am I allowed to do this thing? Whatever it is, the way that you overcome doubts is with evidence. So if you are doubting yourself and your ability to speak up for yourself, you need to start collecting and creating evidence that you're able to do this thing. So it might be, look at all those times, like if we're talking about your daughter, it's a good example. Remember the time that you talked to your teacher, even though you felt nervous about it, and even though you were a little bit afraid and you were able to do that. Look at all of the ways that you speak up when you have to go to Germany or when you're talking to your dad. All of the examples that are evidence. And it really serves you guys, everyone to do this every day because you forget the evidence. You forget the times that you've done things that can help you to build your belief. I send, when I start working with people, I send them an evidence journal and I ask them every day, write down three pieces of evidence of something you want to prove to yourself. So for your daughter, you want her to be able to see, oh, there are times when I spoke up to an authority figure and it didn't go poorly. And in fact, it improved the relationship. And that's a piece of evidence. And you start to build that belief. And then that belief starts to exert itself. And then you can create more evidence. Then she does talk to the principal and it's not the end of the world. But also, you know, she has a good point that she doesn't want to be like speaking truth to power in the wrong setting. And that takes us to the other half of people to understand this is the thing that I'm repeat over and over again, know your jury. You know, in the courtroom, I'm looking at 12 people who are going to decide whether I win or lose. But your jury is your daughter if you want her to um, get up and go to school. Or Erin, your jury is Simon if you want him to go out and he wants to stay home or vice versa, right? And sometimes my jury is, right now, our jury is the listener who's deciding whether or not to believe what we're sharing. We all have our juries. And so for those kids who are emailing their professors and saying, look, I was too tired, consider your jury before you make an ask. What do they want? How do they see the world. And then you ask more effectively. So interesting. It's like my therapist always says, when you have anxiety about something, ask yourself, does it fit the facts? Does it fit the facts? I'm going well, to give this, us as an example. He's like, okay, you're anxious, you know, because you think your friend is mad at you. Mm. Does it fit the facts? Do, is she acting like she's mad Did at you? Did you even do anything wrong? Did you do anything wrong? Or could there be lots of other reasons why she hasn't responded to your text? Like, does it fit the facts? It kind of helps you pull out of that anxious spiral that gets away from reality. I love that. The way that I talk about that is cross-examine that idea. I love to cross-examine in the courtroom. Like I love going after people's lies and sort of pointing out things that they've done. And so I try to cross-examine my inner critic. 
you know, when it says like, oh, you're not prepared, you're not going to do a good job. I say, yeah, you are. Look at the evidence. You spent this much time. You've done this many things. You've done this thing before. You're coming at it from a place of service. Like, but you have to be, I always say you have to have no mercy when you're cross-examining your inner critic. Because I talked to, I had a client yesterday who's like, well, I know it's stupid. That's not enough. Go after it the way that you would somebody who you knew, a guy who was cheating on you and you were cross-examining him about his lies. You've Mm -hmm. got to be aggressive about it. There's something about cross-examining, right? Like in the process of advocating yourself, like I always, the way that I try to win battles or win conversations is like by I'm doing all the talking, I'm blah, blah. But there's something so powerful in actually asking questions, being like, that's so interesting that you feel that way. Why do you think she deserves this? Or why do you think that he shouldn't show up for this thing? Like, you tell me, like, where wh- there's something so powerful in that. And I never do that. And I always just like, I'm always spewing off how I feel instead of kind of like letting the other person hang themselves a little bit. It's so funny that you bring that up because on one of your episodes, you guys were talking about Sarah should have been a lawyer because she loves to argue. And I appreciate that. People say that to me all the time. But in trial, I argue like this much of the time. Closing argument is the only time I'm allowed to argue. The rest of the trial... Sarah, to your point, all I do is ask questions. Questions are so powerful. When you ask people questions, because the other thing is arguing with someone else is very rarely going to change their mind. And if it is, it's going to be very small steps and little conversations and curious questions. The only time argument makes sense is if a third party is deciding the issue. But we do tend to sort of come all in with guns blazing rather than backing up and just asking questions, maybe to prove something, maybe to make them think differently, maybe to embarrass them a little, depending on the reason for the question. But questions are magic. I have favorite questions. I share a list of questions in my membership. Questions are so much fun to play with. Jen's really good at this. Jen's always like, when I have conflict with people, I listen. I listen. And by the end of the conversation, it's usually them going, Oh yeah. Okay. Actually like you're right. It's so interesting. Like I've never taken a page out of that book ever. And neither do you really. Neither neither one of us really do. No, we're we're both argumentative. We're both argumentative. It's not great. Osea baby, prep your skin for fall with clean vegan skincare from Osea. You know, the weather is changing We are going into that fall, uh, winter time, and I cannot explain to you how badly you need the protection cream. It is thick. It is like you put it on and it's like you're putting on another layer of your skin. It is, it is a game changer for this time of year for, for the entire year, but really for this time of year. Um, the Andaria body oil, guys, the skin is dry all over, not just your face. You cannot neglect the, the body and only take care of the face. So Osea, you can use the whole line. I have my daughter using it because she wears makeup. She uses it. We got a lot of people using it. Um, the body polish, all of it. So right now we have a special discount for our listeners. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code FP at oseamalibu.com. That's O-C-E-A Malibu.com and use code FP for 10% off. Love talking to you guys about Saqqara because it works. Did you know that the key to a revved up metabolism, which let's be clear, that's what we are all looking to have, is a healthy gut, okay? We talk a lot about the gut 
It's very easy to just ignore it, but you can't ignore it anymore because a healthy gut translates to healthy skin, healthy immune system, healthy all the things. Sakara's flexible signature nutrition program makes it easy to reset your digestive and metabolic health. Life is exhausting. We're not all, you know, world-renowned chefs like Aaron. It's the end of the day. You're tired. You don't always want to cook. That's why we love Sakara. Sakara delivers science-backed, plant-rich nutrition programs and wellness essentials right to your door. Their organic, ready-to-eat meals are nutritionally designed to help you optimize your well-being with results you can see and feel. From digestive wellness and ease bloat to enhanced metabolic health, energy, and safe weight management. Sakara has an all-new science-backed quiz. It helps you discover which of their plant-rich nutrition programs and wellness products are right for you. So in less than five minutes, the easy quiz takes the guesswork out of reaching your wellness goals. It really does it for you. Uh, From enhanced digestive health, metabolic efficiency to increased mental and physical performance. Now is the time to look and feel the way you've always wanted to. So life is hectic. Give it a month. Give it a month. See how you feel. I guarantee you when the month is over, you're going to be like, I don't want to stop. Right now, our listeners get 20% off their first order when they go to sakaracom slash foster or enter code foster at checkout. That is S-A-K-A-R-A.com slash foster for 20% off your first order. Sakara.com slash foster. Feel it for yourself. Oh, are you ready to analyze our um, oh, yeah. advocacy for ourselves? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple things with you guys that I think is interesting. Well, first of all, I want to tell you that you are, you're both a really good example of collecting and creating evidence. I listened recently to your episode with Whitney Wolf Hurd, who started Bumble, and you were talking about how that experience, when you started working with Bumble, how your lives changed as a result. And immediately I start thinking, because it was evidence for you. It was evidence that you could run in those circles or play with tech or start investing. And then you got more evidence as you started doing it, that you were good at investing and that you were good at picking winners. And that evidence led to, I always say, credibility equals evidence times energy because you get the evidence and it gives you this energy of like, I can actually do this thing. And then people feed off of that energy and they give you more opportunities. And then that gives you more evidence and it's this beautiful cycle. But you do have different styles. You know, one of the things as an advocate that I'm tuned into is tone of voice. So tone of voice can tell you more about a person's emotions. This is from a Yale study than their body language and their facial expressions combined. So when you want to know how someone's feeling, it's more valuable to pay attention to their tone of voice than looking at their facial expressions, especially women, because we're trained to smile even when we're feeling sad and we're trained to sit up straight even when we're sort of down. But your tones of voice as you talk to each other, because Sarah, you are you are a driver and you are you talk quicker than Erin does and you're a little bit louder and you're a little bit speedier. And Erin, you're a little bit more chill, but it's interesting because when you want to advocate, Sarah knows it. And she sort of quiets down. So it's really interesting. I listen to everything thinking, how does this person advocate for themselves? And I'm very into the tone of voice. And once you start doing that, especially with podcasts, you get the sense that, oh, this person's having a bad day. 
because you can start to read it in their tone. And it's something that's worth getting practice on for all of the listeners. Think about the people in your lives. When they, you know from their tone how they, what they actually mean, what kind of a mood they're in. And if you start to really work on that skill, you can use it with bosses, with colleagues, with friends, with family. And it can be a huge skill in helping you to know when to advocate, what to ask for and how. I selfishly feel like our communication and our relationship got better. And this is going to sound one-sided. You'll have your own thing to say about this. But when she started having empathy for me, I think for so long, she looked at me as everything's come easy to you. You've had all the luck in the world. Like you have nothing to complain about. Like your life was so easy. And all of a sudden through like communicating, she's understood like, "Mm, actually life wasn't as easy for her as I, the picture I always painted. And she now, and you could maybe say I'm wrong here, but I feel like in the last few years, she's actually started having empathy for what my journey was. Am I sort of correct? I think that I think that I was able to soften towards you when you learned how to be more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. For sure. So it took, you know, one hug from Sarah and I'm like, oh, that's oh. a this is a big difference. Yeah. Like she's softening <laughs> or she's like pausing. And, mm-hmm. you know, because I think that like a lot of times if I'm, if, if I'm getting attacked, my instinct is like, I feel panicky and like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Where Sarah typically is like, reject the narrative no matter what. Like, that is not true. I didn't do it. I've never done it. And you're just completely wrong. And we can't get anywhere that way. So Sarah softening and like listening and then me like calming my nervous system now, not panicking has really helped us. Well, I used to, my way to advocate for myself was to scream. And now my way for advocating for myself is to be vulnerable. It's so good. And and Aaron, it's so funny because I had a feeling you were going to say that. You have more empathy when the other person is more, I, I call it credible. You know, Credibility is owning it when you don't know the answer, when you're having a bad day, when you've made a mistake, like just being willing to say, you know, I didn't prep, I was late, I didn't attend that call, I wasn't ready the way that you wanted me to be. When you're willing to own it that way, and it's super scary, it feels very risky. To your point, Erin, our nervous systems respond to that. And we can talk about that in a minute too. But when you're willing to own it, I saw it in the courtroom all the time. I had one expert witness who juries love. And he would on purpose agree with something the other side said, because by owning that one thing, the jury was like, well, he's telling us the truth. He's a human. He's not like a hired gun for just one side. And so when Sarah's owning it, that like, I need a hug. I'm not okay. It's easier to feel empathy for her than when she's like, I'm good. You're bad. And here we go. And it's really, really important. The other thing that I see in you guys or hear in you guys when I listen to the podcast is You're both, and it might be the work you do outside of the podcast, you're both getting better at responding instead of reacting. Mm. You know, when you react and we, and in the courtroom, I had no choice but to respond. You know, the witness is up there lying. My client's looking at me like, why aren't you stopping them? I'm getting red in the face, but I can't do anything yet. It's not my turn. And so I have no choice but to let the nervous system chill. And we can talk about ways to do that, but to let the nervous system chill, let the person continue with their lies. And then by the time it's my turn, then I'm ready to respond in a way that's really going to be effective with the jury instead of screaming and waving my papers around and acting like a loon, which is what I would have done if I had reacted. That's so smart. Like thinking about a lawyer standing up there, rolling her eyes, guffawing, being like, uh, looking at her, you know, counterpart, like, this is bullshit. They're fucking making it. It makes you sound like an amateur. 
even yeah. when you want to do that and it's justified to be able yeah. to, to be like annoyed by it. But like watching someone keep their composure and not react in real time is like but it also, changes the tone. Was it Jefferson or Dan Tacchini who told us that we need to like walk away? That, that the best thing that you and I can do in really heated moments. Who was it that was saying? Maybe it was Jefferson. Jefferson said something like three steps back, two steps back. Yeah, like something. I need two steps. Yeah. Right. That you you put on yourself. What it was because I don't know, but our my, I mean Sarah's therapist and our couple's therapist, which is probably not smart to say, but. Why? Just because, like, I don't know, he's your therapist and he's our couple's therapist. He's actually a coach. He's not a therapist. Okay, our coach um, says something to Simon and I, uh, strike while the iron is cold. Yeah. Cool off and then tackle the the topic. It allows you to respond instead of reacting. And it allows you to potentially see the other person's perspective. You are never going to change someone's perspective by yelling about yours right? You have to see the world the way that they do. So then you can think to yourself, what question is going to be effective here? What evidence is going to be effective here? What story is going to resonate with their perspective, not mine, theirs? It's probably the hardest part. You know, in my cases, every single person on the jury was a patient and they all saw the world from a patient's perspective. I'm a patient, I'm not a doctor. And so it's really important in my cases for me to speak to a patient's perspective. And so in that way, to bring them to a place where then they could see the doctor's perspective and see where what I was trying to prove might actually be accessible for them to believe. So is, what are, I was gonna say, so what, what are some great ways? But is the you goal mentioned? to change your perspective or is the goal to just have grace for a different perspective? Like what's the goal? If you're advocating most, so there's a difference between communicating and advocating. When you're communicating, especially with people you love, you're sharing perspectives. This is the way I see the world. This is the way you see the world. Advocating is working to change someone's perspective. It's a specific skill, right? So you don't advocate every day. You know, you might, depending on what's going on in your day. But advocating is saying, you want Mexican, I want Chinese, I'm advocating for Chinese. (laughs) You're not talking about why you love Mexican and why I love Chinese. That's communicating. And so there's a role for for both. And you need to know what it is that you're trying to do. Because if you're supposed to be sharing perspectives and you're trying to change theirs, it's not going to lead to a great relationship. But if you're looking for a raise or if you're at the doctors and you want a certain kind of care, you guys talk a lot about medicine and having defended doctors, I know quite a bit about that. There are times when you have to advocate and that is a different endeavor. Okay. So I think a big topic for women advocating for themselves, a minute ago, I was going to ask you to give us the ways to calm your nervous system down, but now I've switched. I want that, but we also, let's table that because I want Table that that because I want to hear that. Um, But I think in relationships, there is this early point where typically, not always, the woman wants to ask for a commitment, wants to ask where it's going, wants to ask, are we only sleeping with each other? Can we only be sleeping with each other? But it's really, really scary because it's such a vulnerable time in a relationship. You don't want to seem, quote unquote, crazy, which is how we get labeled so easy and so easily and often, which I think men completely gaslight us into telling us that they want to be with us. And then when we think we're with them, they call right. us crazy. You want like monogamy. It's like you're clinging. Like, no, I just don't really want yeah. to get. You know? <laughs> so I guess the question is, what's your perspective on women asking for what we want early in a relationship without coming across hostile, combative, threatening, because I don't think that's attractive for possessive, any, possessive for anybody, man or woman. 
So I think two things. I always go back to the belief in yourself, right? When you're coming at that question in as much of a belief as you can that you're fine no matter what the answer, you have a totally different energy. Mm. And so that is really proving to yourself, collecting evidence. I've been fine when I've been single. This person's single and she's fine. These are all the things that I can do when I'm single. So that you, it's uh, so much of it is energy. If you come into that that conversation with an energy of like, oh my God, please say yes, please say yes. It comes across, people feel it. There's so much about energy and advocating. And then Erin, you get to questions. You know, you don't say, I want to be exclusive. You say, how are you seeing this relationship? What are you thinking about with respect to the future? What is your plan? And, you know, getting a sense of their perspective. And then if the guy seems a little bit iffy on it, then you might want to collect and create some evidence. Look how great we are together. Look how great it is to have each other to rely upon and collecting and creating some evidence that makes him more likely to want to do it. But you want to do that from a place of, full belief that you are fine either way, because otherwise the graspiness, it just, it, you can't out speak that energy. You can't out ask that energy, any of that. Okay. That's the woman going to the man, but we have a lot of male listeners too. A lot of the time the men want a commitment. There are a lot of men that are like ready for a commitment and the girl's kind of like dating multiple people or like the world has changed. So how does a man advocate for himself in that situation? Because I think men and women, as we know, advocate for themselves differently. They do. In general, a guy is much more comfortable asking for that commitment, asking for it. They, it is more, they have been socialized that it's their job to do all the asking, which by the way, is stressful for men, right? It's stressful totally. for men to always be putting themselves out there. They act like they're not stressed about it, but many of them are. But it's a very similar thing. If you're the woman, see it from his perspective. You know, look at the world from his perspective. Pay attention to what is he doing? Are there lots of nights where he's not in touch? From his perspective, he may be out with other people. Collect evidence about those things so that when you go into that conversation and you're asking those questions, you are able to make a case to your yourself about what it is that you are willing to believe. And the guy, same thing. See the world from her perspective. If you want to persuade someone to date you and be monogamous, you need to see what it is about being monogamous that would be attractive to that person. Mm. And it's different for every person, right? For me, it might be like, I don't have to go out every night. <laughs> I don't have to get put makeup on every day. You know, for someone else, it might be like, I really like somebody to eat dinner with or to cook me dinner. And you want to really understand their perspective, what's important to them, and then speak to that when you're trying to persuade them to do the thing that you want them don't to do. Don't you think women find it really sexy when a man's like, like, I don't, I don't want you to be with anyone else. You are mine. Like I, like I always found that Depends really on how it comes across. Like I was just thinking, I about, always found that very attractive. Like I remember when Simon specifically said, I want to be exclusive. And I think about it so differently than how typically women would bring it up because he, I had gone on a date with somebody else because he had made it really clear. He wasn't looking for anything serious. So, and by the way, he felt your energy, honey, which mm -hmm. is why he then asked for exclusivity because he, well, you're just going to tell the whole story. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> but the point is that he didn't like how it felt. And so he sat me down and was like, I could tell you were dating other people totally within your rights. We've never been exclusive. I just want you to know that I was surprised at how much I didn't like it. So I am going to stop seeing other people and I am going to just focus on this relationship. I'd love it if you did too. Genius. That is genius. That is genius. The thing, I love that story. I, I want the people listening, men and women, because I see this a lot that women are like, well, if I date someone else, 
he'll see what he's missing or what he might miss. But that was intentional. They did it to get a reaction. She didn't do it to get a reaction. She just did it because that's where she was at. That's exactly it. And it's the same thing with jobs, right? A lot of people will go out and get another offer to bring it back to their current person. Again, it's the energy. Erin did that like, well, I'm just going to date other people. So she's not giving out an, an energy of I'll show you or let me make you jealous. She's giving out the energy of like, I'm fine with or without you. I'd prefer to be with you but I'm fine with or without you. I was genuinely exploring other options because I was scared to get attached to Simon because he didn't seem like someone who wanted to settle down. So it was, I was not trying to get his attention and that got his attention. But it's like one of these things like doing something, you know, accidentally on purpose. You can't force yourself to do it. You have to get to a place with yourself where you really see the value in finding a person who wants to be with you as much as you want to be with them. And I felt very clear if Simon doesn't want to commit, I'm not, I'm 35 at this point. I've done this. I've been down this road. I've tortured myself. I'm not going to torture myself for this person. I'm going to be yeah. where I'm at. And then, you know, you find your match that way because I think like, what is it? Like water meets its level or something. Yeah. Water. It's, it's from um, some it's water meets its level. Some phrase where it feels like if you rise to the place you want to be at, you're going to attract someone who's in just as healthy of a place. Yeah. Belief is... I think the belief is it creates our results. It creates our reality. And when you believe that you're okay by yourself, all of a sudden you put off a different energy, your life changes, what you prioritize change. And because of that, different people are going to be magnetized to you. It's just, it's just the truth of the matter that someone who doesn't believe that they're good enough is going to have a harder time advocating for what they truly deserve. They you know they're going to accept crumbs. Heather, are you married? No. You're not married. I'm curious how it's affected your relationships, what you've learned in your relationships, being someone who's so focused on, on self-advocacy. Well, it is. it has taken some bad relationships to get better at advocating for myself in relationships. It was the last card to fall, right? I was terrible at advocating for myself. And then it started with work and asking for more money and asking for more opportunities and asking for more jobs. But I don't like conflict either, despite my years as a trial attorney. And so in my my romantic relationships, especially, it was very difficult for me to advocate for myself. And I was engaged to someone where I really struggled with that. And it was a very difficult relationship because what I will tell you is you cannot ask for what you need, but then you are resentful and resentments kill relationships. Totally. And so that relationship was a nightmare for a bunch of reasons, but that relationship ended. My relationship, I waited a long time after that relationship to just figure it out and to get in belief myself. My next relationship was one of my best relationships that I've ever had because I came to it in full belief that I was ready to give without needing to be giving just to get and willing to ask for what I wanted instead of trying to give, give, give and sort of manipulate into what I wanted. And that's a huge difference. Okay, article is blowing up. I don't know if it's like what you put out there, you receive or or I've manifested that I see article everywhere I go. Uh, people's houses I go to, I'm always like, oh, what is that? It's article. I'm like, excuse me. I Hello, I'm very well aware of article. I feel like Aaron and I have been talking to you guys about article for a while right now. They have managed, I'm always like, how is that? how is that only that price? What they've done is they've removed the middleman, which significantly changes 
how you can price your goods. So Article is, um, it's furniture. It's mid-century modern, it's coastal, industrial, Scandinavian, boho, all the great things. It's a perfect balance. They are dedicated to thoughtful craftsmanship that stands the test of time and really is just amazing. Um, Affordable shipping across the U.S. and Canada. You pick your delivery time. They'll send you updates every step of the way. It's efficient. You're not like, you know, six months down the line going, where the heck is my uh, sofa? We really believe that little things can make big differences. So if you're feeling like, I really want to elevate my space, I don't know what to do, it can be so simple. It can be as simple as like a little chase lounge, a little side table, a lamp, a new rug. Just try, try Article. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. That's a good deal, guys. Uh, to claim it, visit article.com slash foster and the discount will automatically be applied at checkout. That's article.com slash foster for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. All right, AG1, I don't even need to actually look at the paper when I'm talking to you about AG1. It's just in me. It's, I just know it. I live it. I breathe it. Everyone I know is living and breathing it also. We're all looking for ways to optimize our health without having 500 steps and 500 things to do. AG1 is one scoop. It's one scoop. And in that, you have your 75 vitamins, your minerals, your whole food sourced ingredients. You've got the probiotics. It's the superfood. It's just really incredible. Yes, of course, if you have like other health things going on, you'll need to take other things. But if you're for the most part really healthy, one scoop. AG1, that is all you need. Even if you are having to take other things, a great baseline, start with the AG1. A lot of people also are replacing their multivitamin with AG1. A lot of people are replacing that with the one scoop of AG1. You feel better. You look better. It's the supplement that I trust and that, I don't know, millions of other people are obviously trusting because it's like a multi-billion dollar company. Um, Guys, with your uh, AG1, you get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs. It's the ultimate combo, you guys. The AG scoop, but then you need your vitamin D. The vitamin D is activated by all the things in the scoop. That's another thing you don't realize. Certain vitamins need other vitamins to be activated. So this is just like the all-in-one perfect morning thing for you to do. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2, okay, the D and the K together, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash foster. That's drinkag1.com slash foster. I've had employees come to me in the past and say like, you know, I deserve a raise. But what is the right way to advocate for yourself in that situation and frame it the right way as as the employee? There's a very big big difference between saying, um, you're going to take on more work versus I just need a raise to afford a house. You know, I don't think that you just deserve a raise because you deserve a raise. I, that's 
Am I wrong? Am I right? Let's talk about it. You know, I was the managing partner at my firm when I was there and people would come to me and say, or to the partners and say, I need a raise because I want to buy a new house or I'm going to have a kid. And it's like, from your perspective, why do you that's deserve a really good it? reason. Why right. do you deserve it? From my perspective, either what have you already done? What's the evidence that you've already done something to have earned this raise? You know, whether you brought in some new clients or you won a big case or you've built a lot of hours or to your point, Sarah, what are you going to do? But that's even a little bit more iffy. When I'm teaching people how to advocate, I talk to them about what evidence, first of all, think about it from your jury's perspective. Sarah's your boss. What's important to her? Is it that you are there early and able to, are you flexible? Are you bringing in new clients? Are you saving her time, which therefore saves her money? And look at what is important to her and then look at all the things that you've done. And if you don't have a lot, you know, this is one of the things that people say to me, but what if I don't have any evidence? Most of the time you do, and it's just a matter of seeing it differently. But if you don't, then create it. Start collect creating the evidence that you're invaluable to her, that you always come in early, that you bring in new clients, and then you present it like you're presenting a case. Make the case. You know, you don't have to like sit up with like whiteboards, but you know, send to give somebody the paper that says, This is all that I've done, what it has done for you, the ROI on that work. And I would like a raise because I have brought that much value to you as my employer. That's how you advocate. Yeah. Because I think people nowadays, there's so much entitlement young people, now. It's like, it's I just, just like, deserve I, it. I just existing yeah. is sort of, <laughs> you're lucky that I'm here and I, I exist. And so I need to be rewarded for that. And it's sort of, you know, I mean, life doesn't work that way. You have to, you have to sort of level up as you prove yourself. Yeah. And I think, I think that's the thing, right? We have the pendulum always swings. And so it used to be, and when I was young, it was like, you're, you didn't feel worthy. You didn't feel like you were enough. And so we gave the message. We've heard the message that you're, you, you are, your value is innate and you are worthy. And that is true. It's not so much that you have to prove yourself as you have to prove your point or you have to prove your value to the job. It doesn't mean that you are not worthy, but your value to your employer is something else. And the people who have this entitlement are just not going to be as likely to get what they want because they haven't mastered the art of the ask. They might, I talk about advocating. I say, know what you want, ask for it out loud and with delight and master the art of the ask. The people who are entitled have not mastered the art of the ask. The people who are less confident, they have to work in the first two. But it's the combination of those three that really get you what you want. And it takes a little bit of humility and perspective taking. Okay, so I mean, you just brought up humility. So I think advocating for yourself needs a rebrand. I think if you were to ask like my daughter, young people, what advocating for yourself is, it's what you just said. It's kind of like, well, I'm here and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, or Valentina's like, mom, I need more screen time. And I need a Starbucks right now because I have had a really stressful day. My no. friend is doing that drama. Like that, and it's yeah, like, no. That's not advocating for no, yourself. It's, it's, it's to your point. Like a lot of people just existing isn't good enough. I want to know why you are not replaceable. I want to know why I cannot go find anyone else to go do the job that you're doing. So, okay. Short story I've told on the podcast, but it's, 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 it, it fits right here. So Aaron and I were in a situation years ago where, where, um, she had a TV show. We were business partners a lot, like in the television space, going into this situation, long story short, I didn't get the job. I felt really betrayed. A lot of people, Wait, so hold on. I think you're skipping over some details. I mean, like just to make it so we understand the story. 
Oh, okay. Well, I just feel like podcast listeners know it. So like five years ago, there was a pilot that Aaron wrote called Daddy Issues. Up until this point, we were business partners. We had done TV together. It was a little iffy. Where I wrote the show for me to star in and Sarah to play my sister. Yes. So throughout the process, it became very clear I was not going to play the sister and there was like really no role for me. So a lot of people... Not from me, but from people higher up. Yeah. So... So a lot of people in my life were like, you need to advocate for yourself. Fuck that. You need to get a lawyer. You need a blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm just saying, like, these are all the things. This is what, quote unquote, advocating for yourself looks like. You need to blah, blah, blah. The way that I actually ended up advocating for myself was like, whereas some people would have looked at it as sort of like eating shit. I took not a lot of money. It came from somewhere. I took very little anywhere else. I was the first person there and the last person to leave. I wasn't on camera. I wasn't the star. I wasn't talent. I was a low level producer, but I was the first one there and the last one to leave. I sat in the editing room from morning till night when I didn't need to do that. Like I, I did things that were so like, I felt like below me when I had like a real mentality of like, I'm a star. And that turned out to be totally advocating for myself because it turned in to something so much bigger and it led me down like a whole other career. We got an overall deal at Disney. And you ended up proving yourself to the people who had doubted you. And which was amazing because not a lot of people would be willing to do that. And no one told me that that was the way to go. But the phase where, I don't know where you're getting this terrible advice from, but the phase where you were (laughs) advocating with air quotes, she was screaming at me, right? Yelling, shaming me, like make punishing me for this thing that was really out of my control. And it caused a huge rift between us that took years to like fix and mend. Well, there was like a voice in my head being like, you need to advocate for yourself. This is bullshit. You should not, you do not deserve to be treated this way. Like, of course, looking back, I would have, it would have been a whole other, I didn't even want to, you know, but sorry, I'll let you talk. You, but no, this is a great example because advocating does need a rebrand. This is actually my like life's mission is to teach women that that is not advocating. Yelling, screaming, um, burning down the house is not advocating. It is it is exactly the opposite. The way that I look at advocating is it is overcoming doubts and building beliefs. And you just said, Erin, she overcame doubts when she kept, you were doing that, Sarah. And it is sometimes painfully time-taking, right? I have no patience. So I get it. For the listeners who are like, well, I don't want to do it that way. It takes too long. I get it. And yet it is so worth it to collect and create the evidence. By going in early and staying late, you were creating evidence for the people who doubted you to believe something new about you. And then the next time it gets so much easier. Fortunately, you guys are sisters. So it sounds like had Sarah advocated to someone other than her sister the way that she advocated to you, Erin, that relationship would be done, right? Totally. And so you're a, that's a great story that I should repeat wherever I go because it shows that advocating is not yelling and forcing and and really demanding, right? Like it's the demanding part of like, yeah. I demand that you give me this thing, but you're you don't have control over that person giving it to you. So it's like for me, you know, once if when Sarah shifted her energy to just being great at her job and her role as a producer, all I wanted was to find ways to include her and make her f- and, and find another project to do together. But the first part of it, 
all I could think was, how do I get away from this person? Like, I can't yes. work with her again. Well, it's I too- had entitlement because I felt like, no, we've been doing this for years. Like, this is what we do. And all, you know, so I, so much entitlement, I think, and entitlement is like the worst, right? Like if somebody came to me with this, like, this is why I deserve this and blah, blah. I'd be like, oh God, no. Like, I no. Like, I want the humility. I want the person that's grateful to be there. And it's just, it was such a learning mm-hmm. process because the truth is looking back, why should I deserve to star in that show? Just because I'm her sister? Like, and why should she deserve to demand that I star in it? No, I wasn't the right person for the job. Like it, we were too similar, whatever it was looking back. I'm like, no, it was the right decision, but we had such entitlement around it. And I obviously have a very different perspective now being outside. Mm-hmm. And by the way, well, I, I wrote and created my own show right now that's going to be on Netflix and I am not the star of it. No. I, I wrote it for myself to be in. Yeah. And Netflix was like, that's adorable. We think you're a great writer. We would <laughs> rather have Kristen Bell play you. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, that's also a great option. So it's like, you have to... But by the way, a lot of people I'm sure would have said to you, fuck that, Aaron. You wrote this show. You created it. I'm going to give you a list of all the no-name writer creators who 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 held who stuck to their guns to uh how, how demand do, how dare you call me a no name to st- no I'm, but you're not a no name <laughs> that's what my point i'm saying there's a lot of no name no i i just think that like in in general and it's not a one size fits all but like in general in life you have to look at like what are my options mm. right so my options, like you realize at some point in your options, like, okay, my options is I can kick and scream and make enemies right. out of it's everybody. It's not going to happen. Right. And it's still, and it's not going to happen. Gonna happen. Yeah. Or I can get on board and win people over and it's yeah. still not going to happen. You getting that role. Right. Yeah. So those are your yeah. two options. Yeah. I had an option of like, I can have 10 episodes picked up on Netflix with a massive star that Netflix is obsessed with, mm. or I can not have a show. Yeah. Those two options <laughs> were pretty obvious to me. And it was very obvious which one was the right one. And you have to get on board and also be all in on that decision. But it's you advocating for yourself, giving up the role. Because guess what? You're going to probably have a 10 seasons on Netflix with Kristen Bell, right? Whereas other people would probably say, no, Aaron, advocating for yourself is taking it to another network. Be careful who you take advice from, right? You don't want to take advice from people who haven't been where you want to go. And so most yes, of the people that are like, I was just going to say, go. this comes down to getting bad advice. <laughs> <laughs> go advocate, get in there, burn it down. Look where they are. Are they where you want to be? I find that the most successful people, the people that I look up to have a lot of humility. And I actually think that the situation with the old show was the biggest gift for you guys because you learned that humility relatively early in your careers in such a place where now when faced with a similar situation, Erin, you're not like, let me fight it, let me burn it down. You've been through this. I've seen this before. And that's the value of every experience allows you to build credibility with yourself. And you start to believe like, I know what to do here. I've seen this before. I know I can handle this. I know where this might go. And it's a different experience than when you're younger or you've never been had to, I don't like the word humiliated, but you've never had to experience that humility. It is not a bad thing to knock yourself down a few pegs. I had to do it as a trial attorney. I had really risen to a certain spot in that world. And then when I started my business, all of a sudden I was like, wait, what do you mean? I have to like figure this out myself. I don't have a secretary outside my door. But learning that has made me far better in my business than if I had just hired another secretary to sit outside my door and not sort of face the humility of crying at night, not being able to figure out an email server. Also, there's a real Mm -hmm. study on being given things doesn't actually make you feel good. If I had just been given that role, 
Like, yes, because I've, okay, kind of proven myself as an actress, but, and like, I am a good actress, but like, if I had just been given that myself, that role, who knows how that would have felt to me being just given something, I think ultimately doesn't feel that good. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting. So I lost a hundred pounds when I was in my twenties and I've kept it all. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 Well, this is pre, pre Ozempic. By the way, this is why supermodels who have had a lot of plastic (laughs) surgery have a lot of issues because they're like, don't actually feel like they deserve their beauty. Like, Mm -hmm. Maybe that's a weird correlation, but there's something connected to not actually, okay, yes, say. You're, that's totally right. You're earning your own credibility. You know, to lose that weight, I had to make myself promises and keep them. I had to set myself expectations and meet them. And I always say, I'm so grateful for losing the weight. Yes, for, for having the weight to lose at that age, because now I know I can do hard things. I know I keep promises that I make to myself. And so it's the same thing. If people just hand you things all the time, and I do think that that happens with beauty or wealth, there's a whole bunch of things that if you don't ever have to prove to yourself that you can do things, it's you don't have a lot of evidence. And when the first thing comes that's hard, there's nothing to look to to say, oh, I know I can do this because I've done something similar. Mm-hmm. I really love that. I oh, really I love, love that. that too. All right. If you're going to drink alcohol, which a lot of you are, I get it. You know, I love a drink occasionally. If you're going to drink, June Shine is the way to go because there is so much less sugar. So Erin, you know, Erin keeps these things in her fridge because she is a big entertainer. She has friends coming over all the time. I'm a little, I'm a little more of a recluse, but Erin is serving these things up left and right. They come in cans. Okay. So the tequila fans have the margarita pack. You can get it in four different flavors, spicy, mango, tropical, lime, all made with high quality tequila. For vodka fans, you've got the passion fruit vodka soda, classic vodka mule, Uh, the rum fans, the Mai Tais, the mix pack. It's just a little bit of everything. The tequila, vodka, and rum. They're in these cute little cans. Can I also say that a lot of canned cocktails usually have 20 grams plus of sugar. The leading canned cocktail is a margarita with 27 grams of sugar, and they do not put nutrition facts on the packaging, okay? We believe you do not need 27 grams of sugar to uh, make a delicious margarita. So June Shines has six grams of sugar with all of the real ingredients um, like orange and lime. June Shines margarita tastes the best and has zero added sugar, flavored with only real juice and lime juice, premium tequila, and a hint of sea salt. It's sustainably produced. They're carbon neutral through their partnership with Climate Neutral. They donate 1% of sales to environmental nonprofits. Their brewery is powered by 100% renewable energy. These are all like pretty incredible qualities for a company like this. So June Shine can be found in over 10,000 stores across the country. It's available at all retailers uh, you've already visited for grocery and alcohol, Whole Foods, Target, Ralph's, Vons, Albertsons, Kroger, the list goes on. We've worked out a special offer for our listeners. At any store, you can buy one June Shine package and get the second for only a penny, one cent, okay? That's $12 to $20 in value. I recommend trying one of their best-selling variety packs. It's a great way to try all their delicious flavors. Go to juneshine.com slash foster, text them a photo of your receipt, and they will Venmo you immediately. It's that easy. That's juneshine.com, J-U-N-E, S-H-I-N-E dot com slash foster. 
This episode of World's First Podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. You guys, I love therapy. I need therapy. Without therapy, I am I am severely not uh, working. <laughs> My brain is not working. My emotional regulation is not working. Therapy has changed my life. And Aaron and I, we, we really believe that there is nobody who can't benefit from therapy. There's just not. There's nobody. It used to be that if you wanted to better yourself, if you wanted to have a trusted professional to guide you through life, you had to be rich. It was expensive. It was hard to get on lists. It was hard to get referrals. It was hard to um, get into people. You had to do these things in person. It was a lot more complicated. Therapy was for like the 0.1% or the 1%. Now with companies like BetterHelp, it is democratized bettering yourself. Okay. This is this is fantastic. This has made it so easy to work on yourself. BetterHelp has, you know, hundreds and hundreds of licensed professionals where you go online, you find the one that works for you. You can date your therapist, by the way, not in a, in, you know, in a inappropriate way, but in a healthy way, meaning you can have your first uh, session with one. If you don't vibe with them, if you're like, oh, I'd like to try somebody else, they make it very easy for you then to try someone else. So you can really do it until you've found the person that works the best for you. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, just give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedules. You're going to fill out a very, very, very brief questionnaire, and they're going to match you with the right licensed therapist. Like I said, if that doesn't work for you, you switch until you find someone you love. So get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash foster today to get 10% off your first month. That's a good deal, guys. That's betterhelp.com slash foster. Can we get back to the physical? Um, the yeah. The nervous system stuff. The nervous system stuff. Yeah. How can you handle that? (laughs) So there's a couple things. And the reason that I can speak to this is because in the courtroom, I would get emotional, right? I would feel my face getting red. I would feel my legs jiggling under the table. I would feel my breath get off. Um, And the first thing I'll say to the listeners, because I think it's important to share this, shaky voices still win trials. So don't think that just because your voice is shaking or you have tears in your voice or God forbid you cry, which we can talk about crying too, don't think that means you're going to lose because it doesn't. Um, And I can tell you a story about that if you want to. Yes, But we'll put that aside for a minute and we'll talk about how to help when you have those things. There's a couple of things that I've done then and then a couple of things I've learned since then. Then I knew, people say take a deep breath and that actually makes things worse. So your vagal nerve is part of the parasympathetic nervous system. And it's the breathing out that relaxes your vagal nerve. So it's not take a deep breath in, it's let a breath out before you speak. And for me, that made a huge difference. If I took a deep breath in, you guys might not know this as actresses, but I was off my voice. I was like up high up here. And then I was trying to argue a case up here Mm -hmm. instead of being down in my diaphragm. If I took a deep breath out, that helped. That's the first thing. The second thing is there's this, I learned this at a um, spa in Sedona, beautiful spa called Miyamo. It's amazing. And then I further studied it a little bit and worked with a woman here in New York named Alexis Brink. It's called Jinshin, J-I-N-S-H-I-N. It's a Japanese art of acupressure. 
And they do a bunch of things. They'll like apply holds to different parts of your body to help either physical things or mental things. But the thing I learned at the spot, Miyamo, was very simple. And it's if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling nervous, grab your thumb with the hand of the, the other hand. So I'm doing it, but for listeners, I'm holding out my thumb and then I'm wrapping my other hand around it. And you can do either hand and just apply some pressure. There are pressure points in your thumb for anxiety. Now, this makes sense to me because I sucked my thumb when I was a baby. So it makes sense that you have some pressure points in your thumb. But when you do that and you give yourself some deep breaths and you sort of try to feel either whether you mentally sort of visualize the blood in that thumb, it calms your nervous system. And that works for me. You know, I do some TV legal analysis sometimes. And in the makeup chair, I will grab my thumb as I sit there to just sort of calm things down. In Jinshin, just to finish the conversation, every finger has a different emotion. So your pointer finger is fear. Your middle finger, very appropriately, is anger. Your um, ring finger is sadness. And your pinky finger is confidence or trying too hard. So they spell out fast. Fear, anger, sadness, trying too hard. But I think if nothing else, that moment, if you remember to remember to grab your finger, it allows you to respond instead of reacting because it gives you that pause that you sometimes need before you start yelling. Respond instead of reacting. Why is that just so like, I don't know. It's imperative. It's imperative. But it's hard. It's hard. And so these things, the, the breath out, grabbing your thumb. And then the last thing is I'm also a crier. Um, I cry, especially in personal fights. I cry even in court though. I would really have to, I really work not to cry because it's a female, less than 5% of trial attorneys are women. So it's crying in the courtroom was always something that felt weird to me. Men did it all the time, but I was always a little anxious about it. And so there are some people for whom taking a sip of water will stop the cry reflex. And that happens to work for me. And what was was the story you were going to tell about crying in the courtroom? So- Two different cases, far apart in time, but one I represented a man who was quite arrogant. And I knew the jury was not going to like him no matter how much I prepped him. And we were prepping and prepping and prepping and prepping. And there's only so much you can do. And the night before his testimony, usually I tell them to go home and get good night's sleep so that they're well rested and not stressed. But we were still working late and we were packing up our stuff. And he said to me, Hey, Heather. And I was like, What? And he's like, Should I cry? And I was like, Oh my gosh, please don't cry please don't cry. No, you should not cry. And he did cry. And I put that in quotes because it was clearly not real. And we lost the case. Another time, different time, I represented a female OBGYN, a sad case, and she was sad about it. And she had done everything right, but but that doesn't always mean you win. And when we were talking about the case, she called me after she went home that last night before she testified. And she said, Heather, what if I cry? And I said to her, if you cry, it's going to be okay because it was real. And she filled up with tears when she testified and the jury loved her. And it just goes to show for those of you listeners who are like, oh my gosh, if I cry, people won't respect me or they won't. If it comes from a real place, it's often seen as credible and vulnerable and real. And it doesn't have to hurt. Look, I know people who have cried asking for a raise and it comes from, you know, such an authentic place because the job is so important to them. The job is so meaningful to them that it's like that personal connection and it makes a difference. Most people are replaceable. That is just, I'm replaceable. You're replaceable. Like there are so many talented people in this world. We are replaceable. Yes. You know, like Montana, for instance, she might be irreplaceable. 
that actually might be someone who is not replaceable. But most people, um, most people are. But on the flip side, it's also really hard to find people that can work for you that, that you trust. Yeah. Well, trust is huge, right? And trust is, you know, it's funny when I give my keynotes, I talk about the difference between credibility and trust. And credibility, the root of the word credible is to believe. The root of the word trust is strong. Strength takes time, right? And so you can't get trust immediately. Belief can happen more quickly, right? And you can also lose it more quickly, but trust takes time. And so you can trust her when she shows you that emotion and she shows that she cares and she backs it up with evidence it is more likely that you're going to start to build that trust and it's going to strengthen. How can people advocate for themselves in all scenarios, right? Like in a relationship, at work, whatever, without it being arrogant? Because nobody likes arrogance. So how do you... Yeah, I was just going to actually say, because I was looking at some of the questions that we have from people online and and one of them was saying, um, you know, executive level marketing sends me press quotes and I always ask to rewrite them, but I don't want to seem arrogant. And that just made me think that, you know, we can pretend as much as we want, but there is always going to be a difference between the expectations for men and for women, right? A man can do something and it doesn't seem arrogant. A woman does the same thing. It does seem arrogant. I do think that one of the challenges for women is that we are just going to have to accept that we are viewed differently and we have to sort of act accordingly. So I don't think it helps when a woman sort of emulates how a man behaves because it's not going to be taken the same way. Like we do have to be a little bit more softer. We do have to be more crafty with how we ask for something that we want so we don't come across a certain way. And that's just the unfortunate truth. So are there differences in how women should advocate for themselves without coming across too harsh? The first thing that I want to say is you are so right that we do things differently. I actually give a lot of talks at law schools about the advantages of being a woman in the courtroom because we talk so much about the disadvantages. Men get to be this way and men get to be this way. And that is true. But there's also advantages of being a woman in the courtroom. I'll give you one example that's kind of ridiculous. In almost every case that I've tried, juries fall asleep. They get bored. (laughs) They fall asleep, especially after lunch when they're tired. When mostly, almost all of my cases, every other person who's speaking is a man and they all have the same tone of voice. So when I speak, the jury wakes up because I sound different and I take advantage of that. And it's an example of, yes, we are different. And yes, we need to not try to act like men and asking for what we want because it does come across sometimes as arrogant or bragging. The way that I teach my women how to do this without feeling like they're bragging is think about it again from the other person's perspective. How is it of service? If I had the cure for cancer, would I be arrogant to say, you've got to see what I've got. I've got this thing that can help you, that's going to change your life, that's going to make things better for you. I would be singing it from the rooftops. I wouldn't be worried about, are people going to think I'm arrogant? And people are going to think I'm bragging? I don't want you to think that I'm being really full of myself, but I have the cure for cancer. And I don't want to make anybody else feel bad for their research, but like, I do think I have the cure. Mine mine works. Mine actually works. I don't want to make you feel bad about yours. I'll split the profits. That's exactly it. It's like, you have to think of it as being of service. For a while, I struggled with this. You know, as a lawyer, I didn't have to sell myself or my work or any of my things. People came to me because I was good in the courtroom and they saw that me being good in the courtroom. But when I see how the tools that I share change lives, that's what I focus on. So I'm not talking about how great I am. I'm talking about how much these tools change lives. And so your person who wants to rewrite a press release It's not about, I can write this better than you did. It's, 
if you make these tweaks, this is awesome. It's so good. And what you guys offer is so good. And if you make these tweaks, it is going to blow it out of the park and people are going to love it and buy it and use it and come to it even more. So it's about the service and not about us. You used to always say to me, like, like a lot of our fights, I think got heightened because you always felt like I've railroaded you my whole life. So it, it makes you feel like, like, well, I have to advocate for myself even more. So I'm going to come to this fight. I'm going to be like, this is not, I will not do this. I will not do this with you. Whereas then I go, right, well then fuck you. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't look at you like, wow, Aaron's so strong. Aaron's so smart. Aaron's so tough. Look Look at her telling me like, I will not do this. I will not work like this. I will not be business partners with you. I walk away going, she's like unhinged and vice versa, where I think I'm advocating for myself and coming across as this like powerhouse. Aaron's just like, she's unhinged. So it's like, but in our minds, we're advocating for ourselves, but we're actually not. But recently, no. I feel like we had a bit of a breakthrough because I feel like calmly and carefully, I said to Sarah, listen, I am totally okay to be like overridden on a decision about an investment or this. Like this is a, it's everything's a conversation. But I feel like you steamroll me into the decision you want and there is no negotiating and no conversation, which just makes me want to say, well, then I won't do that. If you came to me and said, listen, maybe this works out. Maybe this doesn't. I feel like it could be great, but I want you to be comfortable. I'm most likely going to be like, let's do it your way. And the way that you said it to me, I felt like, oh, wow, like this means a lot to her. She's thought a lot about this. This is affecting her. This doesn't this is like stifling her. So the way that you communicated to me, I was like, well, yeah, like that's fucked up. Like if you did that to me, I'd be like, no, that's not how a partnership works. Like we make these decisions together. This is like, we, we need to both love this. And it, I felt like, oh, I'm not going to do that again. Like I'm going to be very much like, yeah. I love it. It's the story that you tell, right? And when you tell yourself the story that she, first of all, to yourself and then to each other, if you tell yourself the story, she's railroading me. I have to defend myself. This isn't fair. She does this all the time. She's done this since we were little. Then there's no room for any sort of meeting of the minds or understanding of each other's perspectives. Whereas if you tell yourself the story that this is the way that Sarah is, and maybe it's the way that she is when she's feeling a little insecure or a little overwhelmed or whatever. And then you start, like, I remember one of the episodes you said, all I said to her is, are you okay? I loved that because my favorite question, one of my favorite questions. So when I was, I was anchoring at the Law and Crime Network and I watched every day the Larry Nasser hearings. He was that mm, terrible yeah. doctor. doctor. Who, yeah. He molested the um, gymnast. The judge in those hearings, her name is Judge Rosemary Aquilina. She was Glamour Woman of the Year that year and Vanity Fair Woman of the Year that year. And I watched her that whole week and the way she handled the hearing, and she was amazing. And more women came forward than had planned to, in large part because of her. And they also allowed their faces to be on camera and on TV, in large part because of her. But as each woman came forward, she didn't say, why are you here? What happened to you? What's your story? She didn't even say, tell me what I need to know. She looked at each woman with love, and she said, tell me what you want me to know changed everything because everyone had a different story. Some of them wanted to talk about the way that the abuse had impacted them, their physically or their athletics or their relationship with their parents or their schoolwork or their partners, their, their physical partners. And in telling her what they wanted her to know, all of a sudden it was out there and then they didn't feel so tense and they felt like they could be the superheroes that she later told them that they were. 
And so it sounds like what you guys are doing without saying it is saying, tell me what you want me to know. What's going on for you? What am I missing is one of my favorite questions also. Mm. It's like, what am I missing? Why are you such a freak about this? (laughs) You know, those are really valuable questions as opposed to, are you serious? Are you kidding me? What's happening here? Which is what we tend to go to when we're reacting. Oh my God. If I got a dollar for every time I've said, are you fucking kidding me? Like, (laughs) so crazy. Wait, so someone had a question about the raise, the raise question or the raise topic. Is it a good time to ask for a raise before you've been giving, before you've been given a lot more responsibilities or after? I mean, it really depends on the jury, right? When the person gives you the responsibilities, is it because you have earned them and you've asked for them? Or, and in that case, you've already advocated for one thing. So I would give it a little bit of a pause before you advocate for the next thing and prove yourself. However, if they come to you with all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, here's a promotion. We think you've done a great job and we want to give you all these additional responsibilities. That's a great time to advocate. So the first thing is know your jury. What's their perspective on the ask? And the second thing, is what's the evidence? Is is it going to be a lot more hours? Is it going to be more days in the office? Is it good? Are you going to be bringing in a lot more value to your employer? Collect all of that, play with it, tell a story about it, and then come back. But the timing of it really depends on them and how they're going to see it because you don't want to ask for a raise and miss your shot. Mm -hmm. Also, if you're asking for a raise, you have to be ready to fulfill all the responsibility that comes with that. That's right. Mm -hmm. Or have already done so. I mean, I think most of the time for women, most of the time, we've already done things. We deserve that raise. Most of the time we deserve that raise. We've already done things. Then another thing that's important evidence is what is, what are other people getting paid to do the same role that I'm doing? You can look for that online. You can ask around at your office. That can be a little bit more weird, but getting that sense, because most of the time women have been doing other people's jobs. It happens often, you know, they're like bringing the coffee, taking the notes, doing all these other things. And they haven't asked for the raise. I coach a woman who ended up getting a huge bonus the first year we worked together. So huge that I'm like, this doesn't even seem real, but it's because she had gone so long doing more and more and more and more and more without asking that when she finally did, I think they were probably like, well, it's about time you asked right? because people aren't just going to give you what you want. You have to create and collect the evidence and then ask for it. And you got to be careful though, comparing, well, I know this person gets paid this because then the response is like, okay, well, should I tell you all the things that I know for a fact that person does that you do not do? Well, that's right. And I think that when you know that information, I would never go in and say, Bob makes $10,000 more than I do. I should make as much as Bob. But what I would say is, I know that other people at the company are doing X, Y, and Z, and I'm doing X, Y, and Z plus. And I'm just wondering if my salary is on scale with their salary when you know darn well it isn't. And also with that full belief Because once you've collected all that evidence to overcome their doubts, hopefully your doubts are overcome as well. So it's just like Erin being willing to date other people with full belief that I am amazing. I bring a lot to the table. And if they're not willing to either give me the raise or something else, and we can talk about negotiables and non-negotiables, but if they're not willing to do that, then I can find something else. Right. And not in a threatening way, in like a, in a, quietly confident way. I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned in my life is that the bigger my reaction is to something or the bigger the threat is, 
the less likely I get what I want. Yep. It's just yeah. not a confident position to come from. Yelling, storming out, demanding. It doesn't, it doesn't get you what you want. My first book was called The Elegant Warrior. And I always say I lean towards elegance. I don't step into warrior mode very often. And I think that the root of the word elegance is to choose. And so that doesn't mean like dressy or makeup or not swearing. I think a lot of people think that's what elegance means. The root of the word is the same root of the word elect. I think we all have our own versions of elegance, but it really, it's funny because when I ask people their definition of elegance, oftentimes, Erin, they say quiet confidence. That's the thing. When you believe, truly believe, you believe yourself, you believe in yourself, and you believe that you have your own back, you have that quiet confidence, that elegance. And then you don't often have to step into warrior mode. Mm -hmm. um, you work with a lot of founders. What are the top three things you teach them, work with them on? Okay, so the first thing is imposter syndrome. I hate those words, but even people who are uber successful, and I coach some people who are uber successful, they still doubt themselves. And I just coached someone yesterday and she's at a tech company and she's very, very successful. And she was didn't want to send a uh, LinkedIn message, an email. And she knew she should send that email. And so you know, part of working with a coach is just simply saying like, what is the belief that's holding you back? And you don't usually want to even admit it, but her belief was they'll roll their eyes when they get this. And that's, she said, she said, I know that's a bunch of BS, but it's not enough to just kind of flick it away, right? We had to cross-examine that thought. Have you ever rolled your eyes when you got an email from someone who interviewed with you? Have you ever known anyone to say, oh my God, I can't believe they, you know, so we had to like pick it apart. It's not enough to say, I know that's dumb because that doesn't work. It's like me getting in front of a jury and saying, oh, what they said is just dumb. Some of the jurors might believe it. So I've got to pick it apart like a sniper and you've got to do the same thing with your own doubts. So imposter syndrome is a huge one. The other big one for my female founders is, they're good at work and they struggle at home. And so I had one woman who came to me because she wanted to make a lateral move, but we ended up spending a lot of our time together actually to get something that she wanted done at the house and to get her partner to be on board with this thing and not just railroad it through, but to really get him on board with the thing so that they could do it together. I think that women are superior operators. Maybe that's being sexist, I don't know, but their emotional intelligence, just I find women to be just superior operators. But when it comes to fundraising, they suck. Now, my, I'm putting myself in that bucket because that's where, when I'm operating, I am confident. I know my worth. I know that I'm effective. I know that I move the needle. But when it comes to asking for money, and I had to reframe how I looked at that when raising our fund, I was like, oh my God, they're going to get the email with the deck and they're going to be like, she's such a loser. My coach, Josh, he goes, I'm sorry, a loser? You're sending them a deck where you're raising millions and millions of dollars because you deserve it. And they're going to think you're a loser. How about yeah. like, like you need to reframe it. Like you're giving them an opportunity to make money. But it took me so long to like, to sit in that and believe it. It is an active endeavor because there is a negative voice in your head, the inner critic, 
that is constantly making the case for the crap, for the terrible, for the you are a loser. They're going to think you're stupid. They're going to be like, I can't believe she's asking me for money. And that inner critic is, I think of it as a nasty attorney who's arguing his case. And most of the time, we don't let another attorney have a chance. And we've got to actively give that other attorney the positive voice in your head that you probably rarely hear a voice and evidence. In my cases, I didn't get to choose my cases. They were assigned to me, you know? So I wasn't like, oh, I like this case. I'd rather do this case. I would get a case and then I'd be like, how can I make the case? What's the evidence that supports it? And now I do that to myself. I say, okay, you are thinking that this is terrible and it's never going to work and you're not good enough. Make the case that you are. And that doesn't mean deluding yourself, by the way. Okay, sorry, I interrupted you. What's the third thing with founders that you teach them? I think the third thing, especially as they get older, is this fear of wanting more. They think that it's like, I have a lot of money. I have a great family. I have this great job. Who am I to ask for more? And we are here to ask for more. If something isn't growing, it is dying. We are meant, it is a universe of abundance. We are meant to ask for more. It doesn't mean we're always going to get it. And it doesn't mean we're always going to get it now. But it does mean that you, just because you have what other people would say it all, doesn't mean that you're supposed to stop and stay stagnant. And so a lot of my founders want to start a new endeavor and I want them to do that, but they sometimes fear that people are going to think that they're not grateful or that they're asking for too much and that holds them back. I don't want to do like rapid fire because these questions need like a little more thought to them, but we just got a lot of audience questions. So I think we should just dive into some of those. Okay. Um, oh, well, this one, I mean, we kind of said it, but how to get rid of imposter syndrome. I mean, we, we just touched on it, but there's gotta be, yeah, let's just focus on that for a second. I'm big into words. I think words, Maya Angelou used to kick people out of her house if they were using words that she didn't like. And especially if they were like racist, homophobic, any of those, because she believed words had energy and would like get in the carpets and get in the walls. And I think words are magic. You know, abracadabra, the root of that word is I create as I speak. And so our words are creating our reality. I don't like the word imposter syndrome. First of all, it's not a syndrome. I have a psychology degree. It's not, that's not a syndrome in the DSM. It's just something that we talk about. And then the word imposter means liar. So when you say, when I say I have imposter syndrome, I'm saying I'm a liar. I have liar syndrome and I just don't like it. What what you are doing is doubting yourself and you're aspiring You want to be something more than what you see yourself as now. So look at the evidence. Really look at it objectively. What evidence do I have that I can actually do this thing? And look at it in terms of, like I coach some women who are returning to work after after maternity leaves or having raised children. And so they'll say, well, I don't have any evidence. I mean, Sarah, as you know, if you have broken up a fight between your daughters, you are good at conflict resolution. If you have managed the finances of the house, you are good with finances. If you have figured out your kids' Zoom for school, you can handle technology. So evidence is transferable. I waitressed for many, many years on Cape Cod. That's how I made my way through college and law school. And so many skills that I learned in waitressing now provide me evidence that I can do the things that I want to do. And so to overcome imposter syndrome, Look at all of your evidence. Hire a coach or or talk to a friend who can look at it from the outside and be like, don't you see how that's a sign that you could do this? They always say when you're doubting yourself, call your best friend and say like, I'm up for this job, but like, I don't think I deserve it. Your best friend will tell you all the reasons why you do and you can trust them. Um, Okay. 
Uh, there's so many. Okay. Oh, is it too late to chip? This is crazy, but okay. Let's answer it. Is it too late to change careers at 25? I am. Oh struggling. my God. <laughs> I mean, who even well, has listen. a career at 25? Oh my God. That's, oh. Here's the thing. I changed careers and it was, this was one of the hardest things I've ever done because I was a, it's very easy when someone says, what do you do to say I'm an attorney? And I had invested law school and so much work in that. And I started making the change. I sort of did a creep instead of a leap, but I started making that change at 47. It is never too late. And in fact, all the evidence that you have from the first job will help you in the next. Yeah. It's never too late. Um, I think my last question I would bring up is what's the best way to give feedback without seeming overly critical? Yeah. I mean, I think that you have to see it from the other person's perspective. And so, you know, I'm not big into those sandwiches, like compliment, criticism, compliment that some people talk about. I think that people see through that, but I think that you say, you know, your strength is not here. It's here. The ways that you can work on this strength is this. I don't think it's enough to say you suck at something. It's this is how you could get better. Or I would focus more on this other thing that you're good at and less on this thing that you're not as good at. Yeah, I think um, someone said to me before, like, well, Jordan actually said this. She's like, I never, our sister Jordan, she's like, I never, I try to not criticize something if I don't have a solution. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so she likes to say, you know, hey, I don't think this is the right way. I think it should be more like this, but don't just offer up sort of unhelpful criticism that you don't have a resolution. Well, unless you say, I don't like that, but let's as a team discuss how we can make it better. I think it's just sort of like an intention, you know, to not like a lot of us just kind of want to hear ourselves speak and just say something we don't like. And it, it, it creates a negative atmosphere in a work environment. And so it's like, if you can have a solution, then that's a more helpful way to bring up the criticism. So I like to definitely say to someone, hey, you're really good at this thing, um, but I feel like we can work on this over here or like the way you're speaking to someone isn't working. Like, I think this would work better. I think that's so right, Erin. You want to offer alternatives instead of just saying you're not good at this thing. I think Jordan has the right idea. Okay, Sarah, what's your last question? Um, okay, my last question. Oh, no. Okay, let's decide. Either... Um, Don't read both ooh, of them. Okay, no, no. Let's. She can decide which one to answer. How to stand up to a boss at work if they are wrong, which is a little bit like the Valentina of it all. Like, how do you advocate for yourself to... Like, you're really not allowed to... How does that work, right? I think this is a good one. I think, right. it's, I think it's a boss. You want to... Right, your boss is wrong. Like, for instance, a good example of that what I witness a lot is like your boss could be like, why didn't you, you know, you didn't fucking send the thing in in time. And you want to be like, I literally did send it in on time. You just didn't look at it, but you kind of have to be like, I'll do better next time. Yeah. Well, it's so it really, a lot of that is situation dependent, but let's look at the word wrong from their perspective. They're probably not wrong, right? From their perspective in that moment, they think they're right. So if you just stand up to your boss and you're like, no, you're wrong. I sent it. That's probably not going to be super effective in the moment. If the person is reacting and not responding, I would do exactly what Erin just said and be like, um, okay, I'll get it better the next time. But then later there's, you know, this is the patience thing. Wait. So in that moment, you don't say, oh no, actually I did. I sent you the email December 5th at 502. It's right here. I sent it. Yeah. I think, I think that that is totally doable with the right boss. I have, I, I've only had amazing bosses. My law firm, I really was very lucky, but I had people at their law firms where people would throw things at them. Now that's not as acceptable these days, but 
there's certain people that in that moment when they're in reaction mode, you don't want to, you just say, okay, fine, and move it on. But you have to advocate for yourself later. So later you might say, now listen, I look back at my emails and I did in fact send it to you. And I'm wondering what can we do to make sure that you actually see the most important emails? Do I put an exclamation mark next to it? Should I send it twice? Like, so that you're making the point with a question, not an accusation, without making your boss sort of crazy. Is that not a little patronizing? Like, well, what what would what would make it easier for you to see? Like putting it, <laughs> I'd be like, you're fired. Don't you how ever. do we get you to see that email now, that I sent? We... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that you want to say, how can I be better? Yeah. How and and ask that question honestly, yeah. but also making the point that I did send it. Right. Maybe is there a subject, a subject that we should come up with where I where it makes you know that it's important? Right. Like, okay, being solution oriented. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Heather, you oh. are awesome. You are so great to talk to. And for people listening who enjoyed this, there's lots of ways to sort of read up on you, find her you. podcast, her book, her TED talk. Will you just thing. give the listener um, a little once over on how to find you? And Oh, and can people coach with you? Can people private coach with you? Yeah, yes. I coach. I, I also have a membership called Advocate with Elegance, and it's a bunch of fabulous women working with each other on this. But they can find everything on my website. It's advocatetowin.com advocate to win.com. Thank you yeah. so much, Heather. You're so great. And, and I feel very, um, inspired, calmly confident, quietly confident. I love it. Thanks for having me guys. Have a great day. Thank you Thank so much. You you so too. much for ha- This was great. Thanks for listening to this episode. Hope you liked it as much as we did. We have a big, big, big request for you. We we do. Please go leave a review. It makes a big difference for us. I was about to say, Aaron, don't sound so desperate, but we are a little desperate. We are a little desperate. We need you to leave a review. It's really important. And we don't ask you for anything. Two seconds. By the way, send a screenshot of your review and maybe we'll post it. Okay. Maybe we'll call you. Maybe we'll... Why are you rolling your eyes? Just every episode is going to say that though. Great. (laughs) Okay. This podcast is executive produced by... Can you not use that voice? I'm sorry, I'm trying to sound... Yeah, but you don't need to make it sexy. This podcast is executive produced by... Do you have a normal voice? Yeah. Aaron Foster, Sarah Foster, and Allison Bresnick. Okay, I'll take over. Our Our associate associate producer is Montana McBearney. Our audio engineer is Josh Windish. This show is hosted by Simplecast. See, that didn't sound nice. That sounded great.